This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining me again on the Parenting ADHD podcast. I'm excited today to be talking to Holly Moses, and we are going to talk about behavior, what your child is communicating to you in their behavior, how behavior isn't necessarily bad, and also about big feelings and how um, I think kids with ADHD feel things more intensely a lot of times. They do don't necessarily communicate emotion very well and how that is some kind sometimes construed as behavior and something that was intentional when it really isn't. So thanks so much for joining me, Holly. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's going to be really helpful to this audience. Would you mind just introducing yourself to us? Tell us about your work and um, your family if you want to. Sure, of course. And I'm so excited to be here too, Penny. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, so so why I am so excited about this topic is just kind of um, two reasons behind my, my passion for children with ADHD and autism and their parents is it really comes far back. I've wanted to be a psychologist and behavior analyst since I can remember, even first grade, which is, I guess, kind of strange to know what you want to do. I've always been fascinated by by people's behavior and, and why they do things they do. Yeah. Um, and then I did follow that route, and I've been in this field for over 20 years now, which makes kind of speaks to my age. Um, and then later, personally, it became a passion for me. Um, my husband and I kind of weren't able to have children the old fashioned way. And those of you who have struggled with fertility understand that can be that's that's tough. Yeah. Um, so we decided to adopt and we adopted through foster care. And it was really a good thing that I was already kind of an expert in the field because both of my kids are are differently wired, and so um, they both they both struggle with a lot of things. And so I'm able to kind of understand why things are big for them. Um, not that that always makes it easy, for sure. There's sure. no perfect parent in the world, including me. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of why I'm passionate. Again, I've always wanted to do this. But at the same time, my babies also are differently wired. Yeah, I think that gives you a dual perspective because you have that kind of clinical perspective on behavior and neurology. And then um, now you have the perspective of lived experience, too, which I'm sure is super valuable to the families that you work with. I think so. It definitely gives me a unique perspective. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So tell me a little bit about what you define as behavior, because I know that um, 
you know, Ross Green talks about how behavior isn't really the problem. It's only a symptom. And I think that you ascribe to kind of the same thought on that as well and wanted to get your input on, you know, what what should we call behavior and how should we really look at and process and approach behaviors that are unwanted or inappropriate from our kids with ADHD. And I think that's a really, it's really a a big, important question and topic because most parents, when you look at surveys and research, they often report that challenging behavior is really in the forefront Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, If they could have help in that part, it could make a really big difference for their child and for them, you know, in their parenting. So I feel like behavior is so big. And not only that, I feel like there is this big sort of misunderstanding about the assumptions in our children, because a lot of them look typical. They kind of look like every other child. And so other people also expect the same behavior mm-hmm. because there's not an outward difference in their appearance. And so it gets, it gets a little bit confusing. Um, and it makes parenting pretty difficult at times. Definitely. And I think when we're looking at challenging behavior, we're looking at behavior that is not helpful for them in some way. Um, a behavior that maybe is occurring more often than it should. Mm-hmm. Um, and Again, challenging behavior in the way that this is making this child's life more difficult. This is a socially significant behavior that we're wanting to either increase or decrease. So I think of it that way. And oftentimes I do a lot of talks and presentations at conferences. um, And a lot of parents that I speak with will ask me, what is, Holly, what is the difference between an on-purpose challenging behavior and a challenging behavior that's coming from a neurological difference? Yeah. Because I think, I think that we want to think of it in two ways. You know, again, let's punish this sort of typical inappropriate behavior that's coming from maybe any child, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Versus my child can't help this because I know that there's a neurological difference there. And my answer is, let's not think about it in in two different ways. Let's think about it in one way. And we can't really piece out those differences necessarily because I think we're going to get it. We're going to get it wrong more often than not. So stepping back and looking at it in a very different way is that it is communication even though it might be frustrating for us. And I can definitely understand that because I get frustrated too sometimes. But what is our child telling us with this behavior and really stepping back and looking at it? And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I put together a detective guide that is this fillable um, PDF where you can go down and look at all the reasons that that your child may be behaving in a certain way to sort of help you figure that out as a scientist. And yeah. once you put on that scientist hat, it makes it it makes it less personal. Yes. I think Penny. That, I agree. Yeah, because it can be frustrating, and we're only human as parents. We get upset too. 
Um, and I think if we look at it in a way that it's communication and what does our child need instead of they need to stop this right now, um, it really changes our relationship, not only with how we understand behavior, but also with our child, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I always talk about asking why. If there's a challenging behavior, the first instinct that you should have is why. Why is this behavior happening? Because that helps you to be that detective and it helps you to then focus on the really important parts, which a lot of times isn't behavior. Um, Certainly behavior is kind of the first thing that you need to address if it's a safety issue. But beyond that, I think that really you're going to serve your child and your family best if you're digging deeper, if you're being that detective, um, a student of your child, and finding out why that particular behavior is happening. Because a lot of times that's the only way to improve the behavior. Um, One example that I use all the time is a child refusing to do homework. Right. Why are that? You know, kids want to succeed. They all want to succeed. They all want to do well. Um, Ross Green says kids do well if they can, not when they can or when they want to, but if they can, if they have all the tools and resources and skills, then they will do well. Um, And so... It comes down to really seeing that your child is struggling and figuring out why and then working on that. You know, I think that's so important. So let's actually let's take your example, which I think is great because it comes up so often. Mm -hmm. Let's take the example of refusal to do homework. And this this will actually be good. and, And it really speaks to a lot of other um, challenging behavior as well. But just this kind of putting our putting our, shining our light right on this, um, example that comes up quite a bit. So refusal. So I think when we, when we think of the word refusal, which comes up so often, doesn't it Mm -hmm. refusing or unwilling. And oftentimes we'll see, we'll, we'll kind of feel defensive as parents, I think, because we're, again, we're only human Mm -hmm. and it looks like refusal. Definitely. And I think sometimes teachers will see that as well. Absolutely. Um, They're refusing or unwilling. And again, you know, we're just human and and it does appear that way on the surface. And I would say 99% of the time, it's absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um, So stepping back and looking at it and what does that look like? So refusal to do homework can easily be anxiety. And we know there's so much data out there supporting that anxiety occurs so much more often in children with autism and ADHD. It just does. Yes. Um, Also, you know, where are they in that moment? And you were speaking to this a minute ago. Where are they and where's the gap there? Because if they're not able to do this work, there's something missing or there's lots mm-hmm. of things missing. And we have to figure out what is the gap between our expectation or the teacher's expectation and where our child is. Right. The gap between expectation and capability. Exactly. And yep. oftentimes there's a really big gap because the homework or the schoolwork or even our instructions to our children at home Mm -hmm. are inefficient for them in that moment. 
Um, So thinking about it being anxiety or an ineffective instruction or a working memory problem, working memory um, is a huge deal for children with ADHD and autism and holding information in mind. Yes. Um, how can I, how can I remember what I'm supposed to be doing? And what if the instruction wasn't really good in the first place? Mm-hmm. Maybe it was too long. Maybe there were too many things on the worksheet. There's so many things to consider. And oftentimes too, we have to think about children who are wired differently also are more likely to have learning disorders. Right. And sometimes they'll go undiagnosed for quite some time and it will definitely look like refusal or maybe a learning disorder is diagnosed, but we're not quite sure exactly what that means and how to support our child with, right. with the learning differences. Um, oftentimes writing is huge for children with ADHD or autism or both written expression differences. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, we're expecting our children who have fine motor skill issues and um, expressive language differences and, and expecting them to write on worksheets or expecting them to write out sentences and they're just falling apart. Yep. Um, and then, of course, as parents and teachers, we, of course, we're just human and sometimes we get frustrated as well. And then everybody is basically having a meltdown over homework. Um, so there are just so many things to think about. And not only with homework, I think of it as a big scale. So you have, you know, a, a scale where one side is really heavy and one side is light. And I often think about this when I'm thinking about the why, like you were saying earlier. And I think that's so important to look at the why. And this is another good example. How heavy is what we're asking for. I like that. How big is this? Does it feel so big that the reward isn't even worth it? Um, So when we put in behavior plans, that's something to consider too. Well, we have a reward system in place, but does that, is that sufficient for what we're asking or is what we're asking doable? And a lot of times we have to really scale back to find the doable. Yeah. To find a place where our child can be successful and then be in that place and then move forward from there. Because if you feel like or a child is feel liking they can't do it, it's overwhelming, they'll never get it right. Then, of course, why even try? It doesn't really make sense to try because failure is almost certain. Right. And then that leads to learned helplessness. And a whole host of issues, you know, that's just a big domino effect. When we're talking about shutdown, right at that Mm -hmm. point, Mm -hmm. um, I was doing a, I was doing a presentation at an autism conference last year and, um, someone had approached me and gave me such a great example of this too, in the classroom that this, uh, young man had put his head down on the table And the teacher asked him, you know, put your head up. You need to put your head up and kept asking nicely. And, you know, she eventually became frustrated, Mm -hmm. um, which, again, we're all human. Yep. And this young man didn't put his head up even after she asked repeatedly. And so, of course, it looked like challenging behavior. It looked like defiance. 
a refusal to um, comply to her request. And eventually she had um, someone come in and, and physically escort him out. And the reason why, the, the behind the scenes reason why, and there's that, that big word, right? The why mm-hmm. is because he felt anxious and he felt like everyone was looking at him. So, and that's why his head was down. Um, and, and again, not, I'm definitely not teacher bashing. Teachers are absolutely one of my favorite. I think they're amazing, but just to give an example of how challenging behavior, it can look challenging. It can look bad, right? There's that Mm -hmm. word BAD, but really it was something completely different. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here is setting appropriate expectations, recognizing that ADHD is a developmental disorder. So your child is developmentally behind their same age peers in a lot of different ways and a lot of skills. And I think that behavior escalates and we interpret behavior as bad more often when our expectations are out of scale for capability. Um, I think, you know, that's one of the key factors of being successful for your child with ADHD and your parenting is really getting to know where your child is, um, where their capability lies, how much you can challenge them and honoring that in your parenting. I think you're right. And so oftentimes too, is that sometimes we think of age, Mm -hmm. right? Kind of what you were saying. And sometimes you'll hear act your age or you're this, you know, you're 12 years old, you should be Mm -hmm. able to do this. And I think your point is really important that really their frontal lobes aren't their age. Exactly. And if we set them up for, again, this unreasonable expectation, then they're going to fail most of the time. And as we also know, depression and anxiety, again, occur more often in this population. So how wouldn't you become depressed if you constantly could, if you could not meet expectations of friends, of parents, of teachers, I can't even imagine how difficult that must be. Um, yeah, it's really that, damaging. It, incredibly. So thinking also when you were saying those those developmental differences, thinking about how oftentimes we'll hear the words annoying or rude or mean. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you hear that quite a bit. I know that I do. Um, and how I look at that is also even the development in our internal voice, how we're speaking in our heads and typically developing children that will be fully developed around age 10. And of course, you know, we continue to get better that, uh, you know, we get, we get wise, we have more experiences as we get right. older. It wasn't a good thing to say, but when you think a lot of times when our children don't develop that until much later, they are going to say things that we actually are thinking in our heads. But it looks mean or rude because we have the expectation that they should just know better. Um, And so we have to work in a very different way with them. And again, that's where another one of those gaps are between where our children are 
and what our expectations are. Yeah, I hear a lot of parents talk about how their kids are disrespectful. Exactly. And right. my first response usually is you have to look at it in a different way. Um, you know, that behavior is often not intentional. That's not, you know, they're not intending to be disrespectful. Um, and I remember several years ago, my son's therapist, when we were having this conversation about, I don't know what's, you know, typical boy and what's ADHD that he can't really help that, you know, is part of the disorder. And she said, well, you know, kids with neurological differences will kind of push their parents' buttons and act out intentionally as much as neurotypical kids. So everything else, um, you know, out of scale for the age is usually can be attributed to that ADHD or that other neurological difference. And I found that really helpful because so often I think our first instinct is to say that it's disrespect or that it's intentional behavior. And really, more often than not, that's not the case. And and that's such a good point because disrespect really, I mean, it's it's sort of this ingrained um, deal with us and parents, parents and yeah. teachers both that we we respond physiologically, right? When you're talking about pushing those buttons, mm-hmm. and it's almost like we we react without thinking in that yeah. moment where we feel disrespected. And so I think there's something there too. And we have to be kind to ourselves and gentle and realize that we're only human, but then so are they (laughs) at the same time. And so thinking about that when something that I'll do with my patients, depending on where we are in our treatment, and of course everything's individualized, but is almost practice that inside voice and how we all do it. We all say things that aren't nice. In our head where, gosh, we wish this person would stop talking or, um, gosh, you know, I'm so angry right now. You know, I could do this or throw this. And we think about all those things, but we have that advantage of our frontal lobe kicking in and saying, say that in your head. Don't say that out loud. You would get in trouble. They would think you were mean. You don't want right. to do that. It's a whole lot of problem solving that our kids have hard time with. Mm-hmm. So I will actually do that in session is, you know, have a child say what they want to say, say it out loud, and then practice inside their head and actually reward them for speaking inside their head. They'll let me know when they're done. Wow. And then they get a reward because that's so such an important skill yeah. to have. It doesn't come naturally for them. Um, so there, again, this is just one of so many examples that we have to really think about, you know, what is it? What do they need? And again, it really comes back to that. What do they need in this moment? And putting our physiological issues aside um, and having to realize that because a lot of this is about neurology and you know, we can't jump in and move things around and, you know, make development happen faster for our kids as much as we would like. So when we think about, you know, again, the fight, flight or freeze, a lot of time the amygdala is overactive. And 
our children feel attacked a lot of the time. I mean, mm-hmm. they literally feel they're, they're more defensive. They feel attacked. And what do you do when you feel attacked? You attack back. Exactly. Or you shut down or you try to remove yourself from this really uncomfortable situation. And so I think sometimes it helps parents understand that, again, it's not disrespect. Like I, a lot of times they're feeling attacked, whether we understand that or not. I mean, feel understanding daily conversations that we have that are miscommunication, even with other typically wired adults. Mm-hmm. Oh, they probably didn't mean to say that. I think I took that the wrong way. I don't think they meant to be mean. All that happens in our frontal lobe. Yeah. So we attack too, but it balances out. And they don't really have that capability all the time. So I think it's really important for us to understand that. They are constantly almost looking, not looking for the next attack, but they're going to feel much more attacked than other people. And they're going to respond that way as well. Yeah, I think they are often on high alert all the time. And if we incredibly stressful. Yeah, if we think about that as adults and what that feels like, if you imagine a really uncomfortable situation where you felt like some sort of danger or uncomfortable situation or was imminent, I think our kids feel like that the majority of the time that, you know, something is going to happen and it's going to be uncomfortable or it's going to be painful. Um, And I think, you know, a big aha for me, for my own son was recognizing that his brain really feels on high alert every moment of every day at school. Yes, absolutely is completely causing him to almost shut down. I mean, he's admittedly, he's 15, freshman in high school, and he has admitted to me recently that he just doesn't try because it's hard and it's boring and people don't understand that it's hard. And, you know, he's in a huge school with, I think, 1,600 kids and a lot of chaos and a lot of noise and, you know, people bump into you all the time. And he just, you know, he he walks through the halls or sits in the cafeteria and he is you know, so tightly wound and just waiting for something to happen um, that's going to be painful or hurt him or be super uncomfortable, that it's causing a lot of problems um, in classrooms and and just with academic success in general. Um, And so that recognition I think has been huge in helping me sit back and say, okay, how are we going to address this? What can we do for him? Um, And I think where we're going is actually, and I've talked about this recently on the podcast, is to do half-day school in person and half-day school as kind of virtual online public school. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it just seems like he can't tolerate that sort of feeling of being under siege for seven hours a day, five days a week. And, um, you know, it's those realizations about the way our kids' brains work 
that are so super helpful. And then that helps me then to realize that when he's refusing to do work or he didn't try on a test, it's more to do with where his brain is because he's feeling so out of sorts and anxious all the time rather than refusal. Um, Exactly. And I think anytime we talk about refusal with our kids, it's a red flag that it that there's something deeper that we need to be looking for. I definitely agree. And I think we have to imagine how difficult that must be when you're holding it together all day, mm-hmm. when you're right on the edge, and then you've got all these really difficult, ineffective instructions, expectations thrown at you that are just too much. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, then, and then on top of that, if you do fall apart, then you get in trouble. Yes, <laughs> then you punish exactly. for it. So, you know, it's really, really tough. Um, And, you know, oftentimes when I'll go into IEP meetings or I'm doing a consultation, I I try to educate as much as I can because I feel like if we can step back and look at it this way, that's so important. And I, I like that you brought up the hallway because there are lots of kids going in different directions. Yep. It can be incredibly, it can be a sensory nightmare. Yeah. And also when someone is bumping into you and, you know, something that I've done sometimes with, with my patients, if they're having trouble with this is, you know, and after they've gotten in trouble for screaming at someone for, for bumping into them accidentally, because again, they feel attacked. It feels very personal. Um, and it really can be jarring and shocking when Mm -hmm. that is almost practicing on accident. So sort of we're coming down the hallway and we're accidentally knocking into each other. Right. And, and I can't tell you how helpful that can be um, because then we have these other, you know, your frontal lobes kicking in and understanding that there are some different reasons and it's actually not an attack. It was an accident. So again, just an example of how we actually have to practice and work on these particular skills and individualize everything. And we can't expect a child to be shocked and feel attacked and not respond. Right, right. And kids with ADHD and autism are often kind of hypersensitive. They're over aware, they're oversensitive, um, sensory and emotionally. And when you're oversensitive emotionally, then that leads into those big feelings. And then those big feelings often lead to behavior that is inappropriate or out of scale or um, unwanted in one way or another. You know, it's interesting. Um, I would not be surprised when we go to have the diagnostic manual updated that that emotional dysregulation isn't going to be a bigger part of the criteria in diagnosing ADHD. I sure hope I really it is. Feel like, yeah, I really feel like that's the case because it's so big and it's it's huge for all of these kids and we have to really put a spotlight on that to understand it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, So, you know, I'm glad that you brought up big feelings. And I think all of us or most of us can really look back and think of when we were younger, something that happened for us that we were upset about something and an adult told us that's no big deal. Right. Yeah. 
you know, get over it. Quit acting um, like a baby. Exactly. Yep. And, and we all, <laughs> we've all been there and that's not easy to hear. But then we can imagine being our kids and what that must be like because it happens to them all the time. Um, and how dismissed that you would feel about these big mm-hmm. feelings. Um, and again, you know, our amygdala is kicking in. We've got, we're feeling attacked. We're feeling overwhelmed. Anxiety is high. And then problem solving and being able to calm ourselves and using our coping strategies all lie in our frontal lobe, which is also different for them. So of course, this is going to make a big difference for how emotional they are. Um, And so, you know, there's just an example I had wrote. I send out emails weekly to my email list, who everyone on my email list is absolutely amazing. I'm so excited to share information with them. And I was giving them this this thing that had happened with my youngest, who is wired differently, like I mentioned earlier. And he was just bursting in tears. He was falling apart. He was so upset. And, and, and I was just holding him and rocking him. I wasn't going to yell at him. Clearly he was having a really hard time. Right. And he started, he was crying and, and, and he was so worried because he was so broke oh. is what he said. He was yeah. so broke and out of nowhere, we weren't talking about money. He wasn't even asking for money to buy something. Um, and he said, I'll never have enough money for my own place in 24 kittens. <laughs> And just crying. And of course, you know, to someone else thinking, oh my goodness, this is so ridiculous, right? But to him, it was so big. He was just beside himself Mm -hmm. over this worry. And I could have brushed it under the rug. I could have said, buddy, you don't even want 24 kittens. That would be a total disaster. Or you're eight. You don't need to worry about that right now. It doesn't matter. I... I I should not dismiss his feelings. And so I held him and I rubbed his back until we calmed down and then we can talk about it because logic wasn't going to work in that moment. Anyway, his, his brain and body were not in a place that, that that would have been helpful for him. Um, so I think we just have to understand that even though it seems over the top, some of these reactions and some of these concerns don't brush it under the rug. They need to know that we are listening to them, that what they're sharing is important um, because it really is. And they're doing the best they can. And I feel like if we can really keep a couple questions in mind, it can change so many things for our child and really our relationship with our children. And it's if my child's behavior was actually due to a real neurological difference. Would I help more and punish less? Yeah. And I I think that's really key. And another question is, am I open to understanding that my child may be just doing the best they can in this moment? And I think when we ask ourselves those questions, we can almost calm ourselves and be Mm -hmm. mindful of our own reactions, but also what our child needs. Yep. So when the word disrespect pops in and the word refusal pops into our brains, that we can really have that ability to step back and ask, how do I support my child in this moment? How do I meet them where they are? 
And really, those, that, those are really important questions that can change everything. Absolutely. Yeah, I talk a lot about empathy and validating our kids' feelings and not dismissing them, as you said, as, you know, inappropriate or um, out of scale for their age, you know, all these reasons that we might dismiss what our kids are telling us, or we might kind of shut them down and not allow them to even share those feelings. Um, I learned several years ago with my son that he he tells a lot of tall tales. He loves to exaggerate. Um, and what I figured out over time was that he was expressing what things felt like to him. Right. Um, and I would interpret it as you know, a lie or an exaggeration. Um, And what I learned to do instead was to say, okay, what is he trying to tell me with this story? Um, You know, to to walk in the door from school all in a huff and say, so-and-so almost killed me on the playground today. Well, you know, and I know that another kid probably, you know, in third or fourth grade did not almost kill him on the playground. Right. But for him, that's what it felt like in that moment. And so to honor that then helps him to work through those feelings and to feel validated and feel like, you know, there's trust in our relationship that he can come to me and he can express how he's feeling. Whereas if I just shut him down and said, of course, you weren't almost killed on the playground. Don't exaggerate. That's silly. Then that takes that interaction, that conversation in an entirely different direction and not a positive or effective direction. So I think it's really important to often just take a step back before we respond ourselves and ask what um, what they're trying to communicate when they're not always truthful. And and again, so many parents interpret lying as disrespect, as intention, and it isn't always. And that's a really hard um, lesson for us to accept as parents, I think. That's one of the bigger hurdles that I hear from a lot of parents is it's not okay to lie. It's a moral or ethical character flaw. Um, and to kind of divorce ourselves from that idea that we've grown up with, that we've spent, you know, 30, 40 plus years with is really hard. It takes work. It takes practice. But I think it's also extremely crucial. Um, I talk about the magic phrase, how can I help you? So often when our kids are struggling, just asking them, how can I help you? Instead of trying to stop the behavior or attack the behavior or use logic, um, which is where I started as a parent. I always just tried to be very logical and talk him out of being upset because it was not appropriate or whatever. And I learned um, over a long period of time that I wish was a much shorter period of time that that is not effective. That's not helpful. And instead, when we ask our kids how we can help them, sometimes it breaks that bigger emotion too. Sometimes it's helpful to... um, 
kind of help them snap out of it, so to speak, to come back to where you are and and to realize that somebody wants to help and and recognizes that they're struggling. You know, it goes with that phrase, your kid isn't giving you a hard time, they're having a hard time. Remembering and reminding ourselves of that mindfully is super helpful. I think so too. And I think you had such good points is that if we're open to listening, they're going to tell us more. Mm -hmm. They're going to be open to telling us because I think if we keep shutting them down, you know, just in any relationship, right? If we, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a colleague, if we're constantly shutting them down, they're not going to really want to talk to us. They're not really going to want to tell us things. And then again, we're talking about that contributing to depression Mm -hmm. and they already feel so isolated. Um, and that's certainly not a good thing. So I think you're right in just stepping back and thinking and being mindful about, what they need, because it's hard when they're feeling attacked. If we attack back, it's just, we're all going in circles and falling apart. Mm -hmm. But if we offer to help, it really does bring that anxiety down and it doesn't have to be any more, uh, or much feeling of attack in that moment because you can't be attacking each other and actually move forward. Right. It only feels the intensity. Exactly. And then everyone is upset. Yep. Yeah, it really does escalate and lengthen those situations, those outbursts when when we kind of react in kind um, and we mirror their intensity. Um, mm-hmm. A therapist I love, Jackie Flynn, taught me the phrase to be the thermostat and not the thermometer. So instead okay. of telling them that they're angry or intense by reflecting that behavior. Instead, our goal is to help them regulate that behavior. It's a really good do it. Modeling is so big. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's the other crucial piece when you're remaining calm, you're modeling that regulation and that self-control and, you know, what you want your child to do. Um, when you're yelling at your child, you're teaching them that when you get upset, you should yell. Um, and like you said, we're all human. We have all lost our temper with our kids and it's going to happen. But um, being mindful and working on it not happening as often as possible is a very powerful thing. Definitely. I agree. So what other strategies or um, approaches do you have to share um, regarding kind of behavior management or, um, and I don't really like that term anymore. I don't like to think about um, managing behavior because I think then that says that we need to approach the behavior when, as we've been talking about all this time, you really need to approach the reason behind the behavior. Um, 
But what other strategies can parents, I think, implement in those moments when they are met with a challenging behavior from their child and now they have to be a detective and they're looking for the reasons behind that behavior? We know that they want to remain calm, um, to hear their kids out and show empathy and validating their feelings and where they are. Is there anything else that you feel is a really crucial component of being successful with that? Right. And I think that there are, there are, gosh, Penny, there's so many, I could talk to you forever about all these, these great strategies. And there really are a lot of them. And so I think about, again, having that ability to step back and look at all these contributing variables, right? There's so many and and now children are different, right? And yeah. so we have to think about, and their skill levels are different and their, their, um, resilience is a little bit different and how they are in each moment is different. So there are a lot of things to think about. And that's why I would encourage all of you to definitely download this fillable PDF called behavior detective that Penny is going to link for you because it really is, it's a checklist. It's kind of your first step to look at What are the possible pieces of this puzzle? And those are really great because then it can show us some different areas where we need to focus our time and energy on. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there can be so many. It could be that, you know, gosh, you know, it seems like there are more problems in this class, for instance, or it seems like this time of the day tends to be more difficult. Is it a medication issue? Is it coming out of their system? Could they be tired, hungry, or hangry, or whatever right. you want to say? A lot of times, too, it has to do with their ability to communicate their need. And a lot of times our children have a hard time with that. And that's why we have to come in and be behavior detectives. And a lot of this really points to prevention. So many challenging behaviors can be prevented. Yes. And such a beautiful thing. And once we figure out where they're having trouble and seeing if there's, an, if there's a gap there for them, we can really put in those pieces. We can put in how do we build this bridge for them and what does that look like? Um, so I think that's going to be a really good way to start out looking at different variables that impact each child. Cause again, they're so different, but definitely prevention is the key. Yeah. And I like that you brought up the fact that sometimes our children can't tell us why things are going the way that they're going. Um, Often when I um, address parent questions um, and I say, you know, why is the behavior happening? You have to figure out why this continues to happen. And they say, well, my child can't tell me. Um, And that's only one piece of the puzzle. Of course, you want to ask your child and see what insights they can communicate. And for younger kids, sometimes you have to kind of interpret what they're saying and and get down to um, the deeper pieces within that, such as when they tell you a tall tale. Um, But I think also then this piece of being a detective comes in. You know, it's not just asking your child and your child's going to be able to tell you very clearly, well, this is why I'm refusing to do my homework. Um, 
And sometimes they will give you an excuse that really isn't accurate because they're just trying to get out of it. Um, and, and so you really have to dig deep. And part of that is really understanding where your child is. What do they struggle with? What do they do well with? Um, and what kind of triggers big feelings and what triggers um, kind of explosive or defiant behavior. All of those pieces are then put together to figure out those whys. But, you know, I, I want to be very clear to parents that your child may not be able to tell you, and that's okay. You should certainly ask, because sometimes you would be surprised what a five, six, or seven-year-old can tell you, um, can right. convey. I, and I think, too, um, and again, I, I think you're right. You can be there. You can have lots of words, in, in your word bank, you can be, you can talk a lot and still not be able to communicate clearly what's happening for you. Exactly. Cause a lot of times you, you just don't know, you just know it's big and it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, and another thing too, to think about is I like fill-ins and I'm glad you said that Penny, cause sometimes you will be surprised, but a lot of children will have trouble starting not knowing where to start a conversation like that. Even if you say, what do you need? They may not know how to start. So you may want to think about, I got really mad because, and have them fill in the blank. I can't tell you what a difference that can make as far as having that. I can, I'm, I'm really upset because, um, I'm sad because, um, and it's, this was, I got a zero because, so there's so much behind there that even if you start that conversation, you start that sentence for them, a lot of times they can fill it in for you. I love that. That's really good strategy. It's really helpful. Um, I think that, you know, leading them, I, th- I think it's important too, though, to kind of be the facilitator in that process and mm-hmm. not necessarily tell them what it might be. So when you are saying to fill in the blanks, I'm angry because you're not leading them to something that they may just say, oh, yeah, that's it, to stop the conversation or to avoid the problem. Um, I think it's really good. But then in addition to that, it's helpful because it's teaching them to problem solve. It's teaching them to stop and ask themselves, what is going on here and how can I help myself? Which isn't um, an easy thing to do. So exactly. you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a super great strategy and one I'm going to try myself as well with the fill in the blanks. I think that's great because so many times um, with ADHD and autism, they have some communication struggles. They struggle to label their emotions. They struggle to make connections between an emotion and its cause. And so those sort of leading questions or open-ended questions are really valuable in that process of being a detective too. And oftentimes we might get it wrong yeah. and we assume something that's incorrect. It feels like another attack. Yep. Um, so we have to really be careful with that as well. Like, oh, I see that you are mad because of this reason. And we're, we're kind of um, putting our own stuff on them. And if it's wrong and, and they're feeling defensive already, that can actually escalate 
you know, problem behavior. So it's really about listening and being a detective and the why instead of telling them how they feel or what's difficult for them. Yeah, I mean, I think as adults, we can all imagine a time when somebody told us how we felt, or why we were doing something, and they couldn't have been further from the truth. And And think about how, yeah, think about how angering and frustrating that was, and how you almost felt kind of betrayed or violated when someone assigned a feeling to you that you weren't really having. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's really, really important to be very open. to getting to the real truth of the matter and not trying to tell our kids how they feel. And I think that accepting where our kids are, again, accepting our own child's truth, then leads us um, to be able to do that more effectively um, in that process, for sure. I, I agree. And I feel I feel like, you know, my youngest son example is a good one of that is that Honestly, Penny, I could not have guessed that he was upset about being broke. You know, how's he going to get his own place in 24 kittens? I could not possibly come up with that reason that he was upset. Um, So, you know, we do really have to just pay attention and almost let them kind of follow their lead sometimes and be careful about, you know, not assuming Again, that word comes up a lot, too, mm-hmm. is assuming how they're feeling and why they're feeling a certain way. So, again, it's that scientist hat. It's the stepping back, taking in the information in it and being mindful, not trying to to understand that it's not a, a personal attack on us um, and that they're just doing the best we can or they can. And sometimes we're doing the best we can. But again, ultimately up to us to be the detective. Absolutely. Yeah, and it really can be life changing um, for families and for our kids. Um, I think that a lot of behavior struggles come from feeling very misunderstood on the part of our kids. I see in my own son probably the most frustrating thing for him at this point is feeling that people just don't understand. They don't Mm -hmm. understand how big of a struggle some things are. They don't understand why he gets upset at school. They don't, you know, understand why he doesn't want to do any of his schoolwork. And, And that can be super, super frustrating, which then, you know, can escalate. So it's and really? you know he's right because most people don't. I mean, exactly. I can't. I can't even argue with that. And here's a quick example: um, is that you know a young person getting in trouble because he got a zero mm-hmm. on presentation. Um, so he didn't even get to present because he didn't even do the work. Right. And so, you know, he got in trouble by the teacher from getting a zero. He got in trouble by his parents for getting a zero. But really what it was is he didn't have clear instructions on the presentation and he didn't he was anxious and didn't want to ask for clarification from this teacher. Yes. So what he said was he didn't care. He'd take the zero. He didn't care about it anyway. And it looked like he was just, you know, giving the teacher a hard time, giving mm-hmm. the parents a hard time. But really what it was is that instructions were not sufficient for him and he was too anxious to ask. And so we would have completely missed it. Yeah. If I wasn't able to dig in there. So we we oftentimes and I can see how your son feels that way. 
is absolutely most people are not going to understand. Yeah. And I think it's really important to point out in this conversation now that um, what you and I would think of as full or appropriate instructions is often, most often, not enough clarity for our kids. No, it's not. Um, You know, my son would, we struggle huge with math now, and he is gifted with math. He used to love math until math got to be a lot of written work because he does have dysgraphia. He does have written expression disorder. And so this new expectation to show your work once he got to math that he couldn't do in his head anymore um, was not going to work for him. He would not show his work. Or what he does now is he does as much as he can in his head, and then he'll write the rest. But Mm -hmm. to the teacher, that's not showing your work. He's not showing all the work. To him, he's showing what he had to write down, which meets his definition, his interpretation of show your work. And so there's a big disconnect there. And he's marked off for not showing what he could do in his head or figuring it out without going through the process that he was taught or what have you. And, you know, part of my beef with Common Core now and the show your work and having to do things a very specific way is that he can often get the right answer, but he doesn't get credit because he didn't meet that definition or that instruction in the way it was intended. Um, And some of it is going to be because it's hard for him to write it, to line it up, to not lose his place when there's 10 steps to solving, you know, an algebraic equation. Um, So there's a lot of factors, but I have found many times because he's so literal that he interprets instructions in a completely different way. And that's been kind of a battle for us to say he needs more instruction, more detail, step by step. And, you know, certainly parents can implement that at home, too, in things other than schoolwork. Anything, you know, I I give the example a lot of taking out the trash. For you and I, if I'm told to take out the trash, I know what that entails, and I do it, and I finish it. Um, To a kid with ADHD, if they pull it out and take it outside, they think they're done maybe. But really, you have to also put a new bag in the can, put the can back where it lives in the closet or in the corner. Um, There are more steps there that aren't very clear in that just simple instruction of taking out the trash. So thinking as parents about all those details, then you're setting very clear expectations. Then there's less of a chance of a gap that's going to cause these different behaviors that we don't want. You know, I I completely agree. Um, I actually, I have a course that's coming out and I have a whole lesson on how to give effective instructions because I feel like it is so important uh, and, and we miss it a lot of the time. And I was thinking about my own son, my oldest, and he gets overwhelmed very quickly and really we, we have it broken down and it's, it's tough. He has a great teacher right now who I could, I wish I could clone a thousand times. Um, but next year it may not look like that, 
but in 14 font in one simple, clear step with no other direction shown are what mm-hmm. works. Yeah. Um, very clear. And then also the teacher giving the oral instruction over, uh, you know, saying it, he can read it again. And then having the teacher just check in to make sure he understood that direction. And so that's not how school is set up. No. I mean, it's not at all. And, and school is not set up for our kids. It's, it's simply not. And so, again, we have this giant expectation that's 100 football fields away. And then we're sort of wondering why they don't get it or yeah. why they're struggling. Yeah. And I think it's important to to um, kind of redraft your expectations around what it means to be successful at school. Um, my son has a gifted IQ. He makes C's and D's most of the time. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of an appropriate expectation for him. We certainly still challenge him. We certainly still give him a lot of accommodations, a lot of assistance. You know, we shoot for better grades. But I learned a long time ago to give up the assumption that because he has a high intelligence, he should be making straight A's or A's and B's, because there's so much more that goes into that. And for me, just him feeling comfortable and good about himself when he's in the school building, for us is a big challenge. And that has to come first, before we even think about getting schoolwork done and doing well with it. Um, And so that's a really common piece of it is that you really have to redefine what your definition of academic success is based on where your child is. And with Mm -hmm. yeah, and with keeping in mind that schools are not made for the way our kids learn and function and show what they learn. Um, And that's the reason between his disabilities and the fact that the environment doesn't um, accommodate or cater to the way he learns, then that means that he is more of kind of a C student. Um, And I know for some people that's going to sound like we've given up or, you know, that we don't put the right emphasis in the right places, but this is born from the truth of who my child is and where he is and where his capabilities are and certainly pushing him to grow and learn and do better, but also to not punish him or have too high expectations that are only going to harm him emotionally. And I think that's a good point because the way school is set up, it's not really an accurate representation of their knowledge either. Exactly. Right. So we have to think about that. And F doesn't necessarily mean they don't know the information. And that's very frustrating. Um, Our eight-year-old came home last night and I was going through his backpack and he had failed um, a test. He He got a 50 and I didn't yell at him. I looked at the the uh, worksheet, it was this long paragraph of reading comprehension. And he has major, major um, working memory issues Mm -hmm. and processing speed issues. And so of course he failed it. I mean, that was my thought. Um, 
Of course he did. This would have been extremely difficult for him. Yeah. You know, had I broken it down in different sections and then had a picture next to it and then reviewed it and then underlined sections, absolutely he would have performed much better. But that's not how it was presented. And of course, he would have gotten a grade that way. And I think if we if we look at it that way, we can also kind of bring down our own frustration. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. One thing we've discovered just in the last month or two with taking finals is that he doesn't do well with multiple choice. And for a lot of us, we think multiple choice is the easiest because the answer is there on the paper. You just have Mm -hmm. to choose it. Um, For him, it becomes part of a working memory issue. It becomes um, an issue with the as fast as his brain is going and he doesn't want to slow down. He also just wants to get it over with. So (laughs) he won't read all of the choices. He just want to get done. Right. And so he said to me, because we had to have this conversation about, you know, what can we do with finals to help you be successful with these longer tests? Because now they count, Um, you know, end of grade testing, at least here in North Carolina, um, never really counted that much. Teachers wanted them to pass it and it reflects on school statistics and so forth. But, you know, he was able to do the best he could and still continue on to the next grade. And so now with finals, it's a different story. And he said, you know, if I was just given a blank to give my own answer, I would have done so much better and I could have passed right. it. And, and that would be more accurate representing, representing his knowledge. Absolutely. Right. And that's completely counterintuitive to kind of the norm in education um, and what we would consider as being an easier way to take the test. Um, You know, my daughter is the exact opposite. She's like, don't make me write something. Let (laughs) me just get an answer, you know. And, And that's what's really important is we have to think outside of those norms in order to meet our kids where they are and help them be successful. And when we're helping them be successful, we're helping them feel good about themselves. And when we help them feel good about themselves, behavior gets a whole lot better. Definitely. Yeah. Well, we are out of time. I know that you and I both could talk for hours (laughs) about this stuff. I could talk for days and weeks. Um, And it's great that we're so passionate about it. And and I know that this conversation is going to be super helpful for our audience. I even got some takeaways myself for strategies that I had not thought of and tried. So it is super helpful. Listeners can go to parentingadhdandautism.com slash 033, and they will find all the show notes there. I will link up to everywhere that you can find Holly, where her course can be accessed, um, social media, Facebook group, which is a great supportive Facebook group, by the way. And so everyone can really um, connect with Holly and get more benefit from her work and what she is doing to help parents. Was there anything else that you wanted to add before we close? 
Well, I just want to thank everyone for the opportunity um, to speak about this. It's such an important topic. And thank you so much, Penny. I really appreciate it. And it was good speaking with you. Absolutely. I am so glad to have you on the podcast. And I hope that we get to collaborate more in the future as well. So with that, we will close this episode and I will see everyone in the next show. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.